When filmmaker Don Porter arrived in Jackson, Mississippi in the spring of 2013, she didn't plan to make a movie about abortion. Porter, who was trained as a lawyer but became an award-winning documentary filmmaker, was hard at work on a different project about surveillance of activists during the civil rights movement. And she thought that the issue of abortion rights was settled, squared away with the 1973 decision Roe v. Wade. But then, skimming the local paper one day, Porter came across a startling statistic. In all of Mississippi, a state with more than half a million women of reproductive age, there was only one abortion clinic. She was so stunned that she called up the clinic and asked if she could come learn more. The result is the film Trapped, which opened nationally on March 4th. Here's a clip from the trailer. The legislature passed a bill that they knew that we could not comply with. And that was the function of the bill. The function is a trap. In the past three years, there have been hundreds of restrictions passed, more than in the past decade. These rules don't add anything to the safety of women. This is our pharmacy. The drugs always expire because we never use them. I don't know that we've ever used any of these things in this clinic ever. They chop away piecemeal at reproductive rights. There's a two to three week waiting list for a procedure where time is of the essence. I remember getting a call once from a patient. She said, what if I tell you what I have in my kitchen cabinet and you tell me what I can do? Trapped explores the lives of doctors, nurses, and clinic volunteers who dedicate their days to making abortion safe and accessible. In recent years, their work has gotten harder. Across the country, clinics have seen wave after wave of so-called TRAP laws. That stands for Targeted Regulations of Abortion Providers. TRAP. Since 2010, state legislatures have passed over 288 such laws. As Trapped shows, keeping our reproductive rights intact has been a labor of love, with both volunteers and medical professionals pouring in their time and resources to help women access safe abortions. In this interview with Andrea Chase of the radio show Behind the Scenes, filmmaker Don Porter talks about the making of Trapped. So I was in Mississippi, I was in Jackson, and I was making a film about how state government passed laws and funded spies to infiltrate the NAACP. So I was kind of in that headspace. (laughs) But then uh, I like to read the local papers when I'm doing a project. And so I read that there was one clinic in the entire state of Mississippi. And I was just so taken aback by that. And I felt like I am a pro-choice person. I'm politically active. I'm politically aware. I read the newspapers. How did I not know this? So I did what any sane person would do. I called them up and said, can I come over? And I met Dr. Parker that day. And, you know, so here sometimes, you know, the documentary gods are with you. And so here was this lovely African-American man. And he told me that he was flying from Chicago to work in clinics in Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, He was also working in Pennsylvania at the time because of the huge shortage of doctors who would provide abortions. Something about that just really visually grabbed me, the idea that someone was flying in, you know, kind of finger in the dike. And so that's that's where it began. And I asked if I could start following him. And um, we had some more conversations about it. But he said yes. What was your biggest preconceived notion that was exploded? while you were following these these fine human beings, these really dedicated individuals who are also people of faith. We should yeah. emphasize that. You know, there were so many, and I'm almost mortified at all of the... You don't realize 
how much popular culture penetrates your imagination until you're faced with reality. And so here I am, a pro-choice person, and the first shoot we did, my cameraman, Derek Wiesenhan, said, if Dr. Parker and the patient let me film a procedure, I want to do that. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not ready for that. And then I thought, you know, what was I so concerned about? What was I so afraid of? And so he went and they filmed and it was a really tiny room. So it was just Derek and Dr. Parker in because Derek said, well, I'm going. (laughs) You can stay here with your worries. And they came out five minutes later and Derek looked at me and we both have two kids. And he goes, that ain't no baby. (laughs) And I thought, you know, we have gotten so far from talking about the medicine of abortion that I was almost one of those people expecting a tiny little rubber baby to yeah. pop out. Yeah. And, you know, the, the medical reality is so far from, you know, it's like a period. So it, it was really important to kind of go back to first principles, which is the medicine, and to start thinking about what is a doctor believe is medically necessary and safe. And, and so I had to really recalibrate to start thinking that way. And that was not because I was, I think I was, you know, I'm, I was politically pro-choice and I needed to be medically pro-choice. Talk about the larger implications once government starts getting involved in the medicine of abortion and reproductive rights, what's to stop them from getting involved in other areas of health care? Well, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in fact, you know, a number of these laws are companion bills to some states Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, they also oppose IUD. They oppose IVF. These are the same states that have passed personhood bills. Fetus is a person. Potential life is is sacrosanct. But I think for me, this film, it's about so much more than abortion. It's about the political mechanism by which people's reproductive lives and personal lives are controlled by people who have different opinions. Which brings up the separation of church and state, which is something more observed in the breach these days. <laughs> you know, it, it is, and um, I'm a northerner. You know, I'm from, I was born in Brooklyn, I was raised in New York City, um, and we like our religion private. Yeah. <laughs> and it's anything but private in the South. Um, and so that I think that, to go back to your earlier question, that was another um, kind of feeling I had to wrestle with because, you know, just like it's unseemly to ask people, it's like yeah. in the North, it's unseemly to ask what your religious background is. Yeah. People might volunteer it, but it's not something we ask. Whereas in the South, and when I was filming Gideon's Army, I sat in on a jury selection where the prosecutor not only asked people what their church was, but how often they went as a voir dire question and everybody happily volunteered well my home church is this but this is the church I go to and you know it really struck me that I needed to kind of check my bias and make sure that I had an open and respectful approach to religion and that ended up becoming a really important piece of the film because it was important to my characters and their religious faith you know Dr. Parker will say I don't do abortions in spite of my religion. I do it because of my religion. His God is a loving God. And I think, you know, that's in my Protestant upbringing, that very much is in accord with how I was raised. 
which is it's a God of forgiveness. It's a God of loving, a God of comfort. Yes, yes, not a God of screaming at you as you're walking in. I love that in front of one of the uh, the clinics that you filmed, there is a sign that says Jesus doesn't shame women. Mm-hmm. And yet these protesters do. You know, they do, and um, and they, they do so much more. The, the vitriol um, that Dr. Parker is subjected to one of the protesters called him a filthy Negro abortionist who's committing black genocide. So the racial, um, and you know, this, I, I wanted to, I see so clearly that these are not spontaneous talking points. You know, we see across the country, we had the protester who yelled like, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I didn't see her in Detroit. So, you know, I think this is a talking point for the anti-choice evangelicals because they know that so many black and Latina women are having abortion for all kinds of reasons, that this has become a very effective social stigma talking point. And in fact, Dr. Parker leads seminars with white doctors about how they are not committing black genocide. But the need for that kind of seminar, I think, is instructive. The laws themselves that are being passed in in these different states, they all come from the same source. It's not a spontaneous generation. No. no. So along the way, Sari Gilman um, is the wonderful editor of this film. And she kept saying, is there some kind of coordination happening? Because, you know, we were looking, we were actually looking at the different laws in different states. And we were doing that to make a graphics because I, I was like, we have to be accurate. We have to have the right number of states. So we had done a lot of research. And I was, you know, I'm just not a conspiracy person, despite the fact that I'd made a movie about conspiracy. <laughs> South. That's but, why you're um, the perfect person to make the film about conspiracy. Because I, I don't, I, you know, I think that I think that very few people are actually can get their act together enough to make the kind of conspiracy come to life. So then we found this group, Americans United for Life, that came to being in the wake of Roe v. Wade in in the seventies, and their sole objective is to overturn Roe. So unsuccessful in doing that, what they have been successful in is drafting model laws, and and they are laws that are passed around. So they started with personhood bills; those are you know effective at the state level, but struck down. Sort Certain places. Then you have abortions illegal at six weeks. That was struck down. 15 weeks, struck down. 20 weeks, that one was a keeper. And so you have a number of states where, including Texas, um, including many other states where abortions outlawed after 20 weeks, which means that the conversation has automatically shifted not to abortions illegal always, but to there is a cutoff. You know, so that's the first huge restriction. And then you see, along with the legal campaign, is the social campaign. So these laws are being passed in a climate where we have this huge, at the state level, shift to the right. We have people who have protested and are aghast at the Obama presidency. You know, he's elected in 2008. In 2010, you have the Sarah Palin Tea Party people elected at the state level. And one of the first things they do is start passing those model laws drafted by Americans United for Life. And now those laws are picking up steam. And so we see 27 states around America, there's some form of these anti-choice laws. It's mind boggling. It is. I mean, and, and that's, I think it's important to recognize, while this is certainly a threat to abortion rights, this is a political systematic approach to depriving millions of people of rights on all sorts of levels. And, you know, voting matters. Who's in the Supreme Court matters. 
So Texas is the state with the second largest state with women of reproductive age, 5.4 million women. Before the laws regulating the clinics, before the, the law basically makes them become mini hospitals, and it's extremely expensive or sometimes impossible to comply with. So before the law, there were about 40 clinics in Texas. Immediately after, there were 19. If the law is upheld, there will be nine, and most of those will be centered in cities, in busy cities. So there will be hundreds of miles where you'll be able to go without any abortion clinic. And we've discussed it's a real health issue. The numbers of women self-aborting has risen. There's a study that between 100,000 and 240,000 Texas, just in Texas, have tried to self-abort. People are hemorrhaging, people are throwing themselves downstairs, emergency rooms. It's really a pre-row situation, which is exactly what Americans United for Life, that is that is exactly their intent. We have a generation of women now who don't remember that time. I don't think they really understand what life was like before Roe, although these economically challenged women in Texas are finding out yeah. the hard way. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm just the generation after, so I've only ever known since I've been a sexually active person and since I've only ever known a world where Roe existed. And that's why it is so stunning to me (laughs) that we are here. There was a really interesting campaign called Ask Your Mother where people are recounting. And the stories that we are hearing, one woman spoke about just this week. Uh, I was talking to her and she said her mother had had an abortion in a barn with a doctor who had a gun up against the door because they knew it was illegal. And if they were raided by the sheriff's department, there was going to be violence. You know, my grandfather was uh, a physician and used to travel south. He lived in New York. Our family lived in New York, but he would go south in the summers. And one of the things he would do is abortions. He and his brother were both physicians. They were both black. And word got around that they would do abortions and the white women started going to them. So it was it was okay when the black women were being seen by Doc, but when the white women started to go, the local men came to their house with guns and threatened them and there was a, there was a showdown. So it's not that far removed in our past that these stories, but what I see is a real effort to disenfranchise and to disempower women of all economic backgrounds. Uh, and I think it's dangerous as well as outrageous. One thing I wanted to bring up is um, there there used to be a group called Operation Rescue. It mm-hmm. has changed its name, but it is... Uh, to Operation Save America. Operation Save America. It's made up of people who are known terrorists. There Can people, we put it that way? I mean, there are people in Operation Rescue who were convicted of crimes against clinics for attempting to bomb clinics and making threats against abortion providers. And Operation, I call them Operation Rescue now because I think that the PR job, you know, part of what we need to do in this conversation is talk about the truth. Operation Rescue now, they choose a clinic to target and they call on their armies of God, as they put it, to come. So in our film, they chose the Montgomery Clinic to come protest, and they do that for clinics around the country. And what usually happens is there's this concerted protest, but um, the violence and threat levels against the clinics always increases. And so, in fact, it wasn't connected to Operation Rescue, but in our film, right before the film was released at Sundance, the Colorado murders happened. Sources say the 57-year-old drove to plan Parenthood in this silver pickup, carrying a duffel bag full of AK-style rifles and handguns, opening fire. After surrendering, he made rambling, hostile comments toward Planned Parenthood and President Obama. 
Planned Parenthood has become so we went into the Sundance Film Festival having to hire private security you know we had personal bodyguards they did bomb sniffing at each of the the screenings so you know the dangers are real and you sometimes it's not that you forget but you try not to let that control what you do but we take the threats very seriously I also want to talk about in in Supreme Court rulings and and judicial rulings the the phrase undue burden mm-hmm. is used as far as you don't want to pass laws that create an undue burden on women seeking an abortion but that's so nebulous That's right. Yeah. And that is really, you know, the heart of this case is whether laws that regulate the clinics that have in uh, practical terms being impossible to comply with and so have led to clinic closures, whether that presents an undue burden to a woman in Texas seeking an abortion. So on the record, on the merits, this should be a really easy case. There's such a clear, um, although Justice Kennedy did ask about the relation between the clinic closures and the law, asked if it was a coincidence. So I think that there's a lot of evidence in the record. You know, if this isn't an undue burden, I'm not quite sure what would be. Um, So the case was just argued on March 2nd, and a decision is expected at the end of June. So for the film, one of the objectives, one of our objectives is to be in as many theaters and as many communities across the country as possible. And then we have a big wind up with uh, something we're super proud of which is our airing on independent lens in mid-June. So it will be in every home in the country. But, you know, with this presidential year, it's a real fight, struggle to keep in the conversation. Dr. Parker doesn't wear a vest to protect himself. Were you at all tempted to put one on while you were filming? Um, I wasn't really tempted to put a vest on, but... I, I will say it's certainly you cross a parking lot and every once in a while I would think I'm kind of out in the open here. You certainly don't get in your car without looking under it or looking around and seeing who's there. You know, I was making this film over a few years, over two and a half years. And I realized at some point you do, you really do feel love for your subjects because you're with them so much. And I realized I was not asking him in particular about safety. So it was on our very last interview. And I said, I realize I'm not asking you about this. And I I really need to. And he said in his very, you know, measured, kind way, he doesn't wear a vest. And I started to cry. (laughs) And, you know, so that's the audio. So we use that audio is basically his response to me and a conversation that he unfortunately has to have with his family and anybody who cares about him. But later what you know, what he said is they shot Dr. Tiller in the head. If people want to kill me, they will kill me. So he spends his life right sizing the risk. He's like, I want to live. I am not reckless, but I also can't be controlled by people who are irrational. And, you know, I think he certainly is brave, but I think, you know, when people ask about the conversation between pro-choice and anti-choice people, I always think um, the anti-choice people get to express their opinions and don't think that someone's going to shoot them. And wouldn't that be nice if we had that same luxury of not feeling like we were going to (laughs) die? Don Porter, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Andrea Chase of Behind the Scenes, talking with Don Porter, 
keep an eye out for her film, Trapped. You've been listening to Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast.